0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks.
1: Good afternoon. So in this session, we are going to learn about UC Irvine's Decade Program, which is designed to address the drop-off in female and underrepresented minority group enrollment uh, between undergraduate and graduate education. And I, as I understand it after reading the document, there's a very strong emphasis on climate, so I'm really looking forward to hearing that. Uh, we have... Two faculty presenters, and as I understand it, two graduate students as well. Our two faculty presenters, we have Francis Leslie, the dean, of graduate, the dean of the Graduate Division and Professor of Pharmacology and Anatomy and Neurobiology at UC Irvine, and Susan Coutine, Associate Dean of the Graduate Division and Professor of Criminology, Law, and Society and Anthropology, also at UC Irvine. A lot of multidisciplinary representation here. Very good. And they will introduce their graduate students who will participate in the presentation.
2: So I want to talk today briefly about decade. I was asked at lunch, what is decade? Does it stand for something... And, of course, these acronyms always stand for something, but I'll only say it once in a day. So this particular acronym stands for Diverse Educational Community and Doctoral Experience. And the purpose of DECADE, uh, which is a program that was implemented here two years ago, is to transform the climate for graduate education at UC Irvine. And um, we're giving ourselves a decade or ten years to do it. Our target goal is 2020. So our objectives are um, to improve the recruitment, retention, and completion of underrepresented minorities in doctoral programs and to reach equivalent diversity of grad and undergrad uh, programs by 2020. And as you can see here, this program was actually institutionalized before we applied for funding. So this is a program um, which... uh, um, will continue to exist after our funding ends but we were fortunate enough to receive funding from the Department of Education through the FIPSE comprehensive program for this, grant, for this work so what has been discussed here earlier um, all day in fact is the, the loss of diversity at key transition points and so we were particularly interested in the, the transition from undergraduate to doctoral education And these are the data that we actually showed in our own grant. These are data from our own campus for fall 2009. And we compared the diversity of equivalent undergraduate and graduate programs in the various schools on our campus. On the bottom, you can see the... Comparison of women in the programs. So the uh, beige bar is at undergraduate and the blue bar is um, doctoral. And you can see that um, with the exception of physical sciences and to a lesser extent social sciences, there actually isn't much of a drop-off in um, uh, gender diversity uh, between uh, undergraduate and graduate. However, um, when we look at underrepresented minorities, um, then we do see a very, very big difference. Arts, there's only a few PhD students in arts, so we won't pay attention to arts. Biological sciences, as you just heard from Dean Bennett, they do a wonderful job. They were slightly more diverse at the graduate level than at the undergraduate level. However, when we looked across our other programs And it wasn't just uh, STEM programs, it was also programs like social ecology and social sciences. We saw a very, very large drop-off in the uh, minority representation between um, undergraduate and graduate programs. And that concerned us. And um, so there are many, many possible reasons why we might have that drop-off. But one that we decided to focus on, because it actually was the focus of our advanced program, and we had one of the first advanced programs in the country, was institutional climate. And I actually approached our provost at the time that our NSF AGEP grant, which was funded for, uh, it was actually a system-wide alliance um, uh, grant um, for graduate diversity, um, it ended, and I became concerned that the institution was putting a lot of resources into faculty diversity through the advanced program, but really wasn't looking very much at the pipeline. So if our doctoral programs are not diverse, we can't expect to have a diverse faculty. So he quickly agreed that, in fact, we would expand the advanced program, and um, then fortunately we were able to get some funding to go with it. So the, our advance program was based on a model of institutional transformation by changing faculty attitudes. And I think it's been fairly successful. We have, indeed, um, improved climate um, on this campus, and faculty have. I was an equity advisor as well before I became a dean. And we used to go, and I used to go at least, and give talks to um, search committees, faculty search committees on implicit bias. And uh, they would listen especially when I told them that actually women also show implicit bias towards um, female candidates. And so everybody went, you know, "Um, this is not just about me. And they would listen and um, would try to adopt uh, processes that would eliminate those implicit biases. So we thought the difference between undergraduate and graduate education is that the faculty don't play much of a role in the recruitment of undergraduate students. At the UC system, that's really done centrally. However, they're the ones who select uh, students into graduate programs. So if they have any inherent biases, then perhaps um, this is being reflected in the recruitment of students. So um, we... Uh, developed this program that involves peer-to-peer engagement of faculty to create a more inclusive culture for graduate admissions um, through program milestones to degree completion. And it was really a coordination of effort between the Office of Academic Affairs and the Graduate Division. So the advanced program is run through the Office of Academic Affairs and features equity advisors, faculty who are advisors to the deans of each school. Um, Through the graduate division, we had a diversity advisory council, and we worked together. We work together on this program now, and uh, the equity advisors can't do it all, basically. They're responsible for faculty diversity, Um, so they are assisted by a group of uh, decade faculty mentors, several of whom are here this afternoon. No, the equity advisors are, sorry. Um, And so we we, uh, aimed to get one faculty decade mentor per graduate program. We haven't quite reached that, but we have uh, quite a cohort now campus-wide of decade mentors. And then we also formed a decade student council, two of whose members you will meet in a few moments. So what do our faculty mentors do? Um, they are school-based, so the idea was, just as it was for our advanced uh, faculty equity program, was to try to change processes and climate at the school level. And so what we were looking for was these, for these uh, faculty mentors to talk with their fellow colleagues and to discuss issues that might impact, negatively impact, graduates' program diversity so that they would present data and share best practices with the graduate um, program admissions committees. Um, They would work with the equity advisor and the associate graduate dean in the school to improve school-wide climate. And that they would um, uh, share professional development programming opportunities that we offer centrally with students um, in their schools. And that they would also work with the student council. And actually, that has been the hardest thing I can tell you. Faculty and students don't want to talk to each other. We're still struggling with that one. But, you know, um, everything else has gone according to plan. So before we started, our first year was really a planning year, and then we just completed our second year. Before we started, we decided to do our own climate survey. And um, we we, um, sent out a survey to all faculty and all uh, doctoral students And uh, we got 24, almost 25% response rate from faculty and about 22% from students. We stopped when we started to get hate mail from students in particular. Uh, You know, I'm going to leave this university if you don't stop emailing me. And so this is about the number of people on our campus who are prepared to discuss their their, um, beliefs about diversity with us. Who knows what the other 75% think? But we actually got some very interesting data through the, the, those that did answer the survey. Now we had designed it as a, a largely a quantitative survey with Likert scale um, for answers. And I'll show you a little bit of those data. But at the very end, we also included just one free response field. What else would you like to tell us about diversity at UC Irvine? And 40% of the survey respondents told us a lot. Some of them would tell us pages. We have a you know, huge amount of free response data. So um, I felt, I'm a pharmacologist, I, I felt quite comfortable with statistical analysis of the quantitative data. But thank goodness my associate dean, Susan, is an anthropologist and is used to qualitative analysis, and you received that in your packets before you came. So between the two of us, um, um, we are an interdisciplinary team. And then we also recruited two students who just finished their first year as doctoral students in the Department of Education. And they came and did some further analysis of both the quantitative and qualitative data as a first-year project. And so they'll present their findings as well. So... We have a large amount of of data on the quantitative responses, but I thought that these two findings are probably most relevant to this particular um, setting. So we asked both faculty and graduate students um, if if they had experienced three things. Inappropriate references to their personal lives, inappropriate references to their appearance. Or disparaging remarks about qualifications. And um, those who answered three, it wasn't just three times they'd um, heard um, these things, it was five times or more. And so what we found was that faculty had heard this more frequently than students, not surprisingly. Um, There was a sex difference in our student population, so female students were more likely to have heard this than male students, but we didn't see any difference based on um, race or ethnicity. On the other hand, for our faculty, the only difference that we saw, it was actually an interaction effect... So there wasn't a sex difference between non-minority faculty, but there was a huge difference with uh, minority faculties. So these are minority women, and these are minority men. And our majorities were down here. So everything that we've heard about the difficulty of being a minority woman as a faculty member, these data bear out. Um, The climate is chilly. Even after 10 years of advance, the climate is still chilly. Then we asked about sex, uh, so that was sex, those were whether uh, they had um, experiences based on their gender. And then we asked about experiences based on race and ethnicity, and we asked the same, same three questions. Inappropriate behavior related to ethnicity, disparaging remarks about qualifications, or discouragement about advancement. Actually, they're slightly different questions. And here we found for both faculty and students that um, there were significant differences between minority and non-minority. And that there were differences between um, faculty and students, which again is not surprising. Students haven't been around as long to hear as many disparaging remarks. So non-minority students were less likely particularly to have heard disparaging remarks about qualifications or discouragement about advancement um, than minority students were. And similarly, non-minority faculty were less likely to have heard those. But there were also significant differences with regards to inappropriate behavior. So that's just a snapshot of the overall quantitative findings. We broke it down by school. We did have differences in school response rates. So, for example, computer scientists don't like to do surveys. I found that out. Yes, they just won't do surveys. Um, but other schools were more likely to. But um, I wanted to introduce our two students. Um, uh, Kelly Ward will first of all present a, f- uh, more de- um, a further analysis of the um, quantitative data, and then uh, of the qualitative data, sorry, and then Marina Corrales will uh, present a further analysis of the qualitative data.
3: Good evening, everybody. Thanks for having me. And before I start, I've been here all day, and I just want to uh, say thanks. As a student, it means a lot to see all of you working on the behalf of myself and others like me who aspire to be faculty one day. So, um, who will be a faculty person one day? So, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, so, I wanted to look a little bit more at racial climate and. We, when researchers look at racial climate, they look at a lot of different things. I was also curious about how um, individual attitudes regarding diversity are formed, or not necessarily formed, but what kinds of factors go into those, um, those formulations of individuals' attitudes, because it's, it's a really complicated thing. So um, my hypotheses were that racial climate may affect graduate students' attitudes toward diversity, and this effect may differ by underrepresented minority status. I'm also particularly interested in how climate interacts with um, different populations of students. Instead of lumping us all together, how do majority students perceive climates? How, how are their uh, attitudes shaped versus how students of color? So I looked at three different things uh, within the context of schools here on, at UCI. So uh, I looked at peer attitudes about diversity, whether or not they have a positive effect on individual attitudes. So if you're in a school, say, um, physical sciences, how does the climate there uh, interact with or predict individuals' attitudes about diversity? I also wanted to look look at institutional diversification efforts. So that's very different, and that's thinking about the role of institutions in creating and maintaining diverse environments and student bodies. The first, the first question is more about the general um, what I call warm and fuzzies about diversity. So diversity is a good thing. Diversity helps us all. Diversity is good for equity. This, the second one is more about recruiting, outreach, and uh, compositional diversity. Then the last one is about the actual proportion of URM students in a school. So some research has connected the number of URM students to attitudes about diversity or racial climate, and trying to think about a way to advocate for more diversity is to say, if we bring more students of color here, if we bring more diversity, attitudes will change. People will just accept everything more. So that's the start. Um, I did a statistical hierarchical linear model, um, and I'll just tell you about my dependent variable, is that it's a factor scale for individual students and their beliefs about diversity as a positive thing. It was uh, created from multiple items on the survey, about five different items. So briefly, my findings from, my, from this concise project were that in this situation, it makes sense. Right? Being surrounded by peers who affirm diversity matters for both URMs and my majority students, but it matters more for um, underrepresented students. So, if you're in the School of Social Sciences and everybody around you says, yes, positive, positive things about diversity, diversity is great, then it's more likely that you will also believe those things. Now, here's the interesting part. When, we, when I looked at the uh, attitudes about school diversification efforts, there's actually a negative relationship with individual attitudes. So if you are in a situation in a school that is focusing a lot on diversification efforts, then there is a, a correlation or it's associated with more negative attitudes about diversity on, at the individual level. And this is something that perplexed me and that I've been thinking about and that I'm actually going to do more research on. And actually the conversations here today helped me kind of think of ways to research that more or what, what might be going on here because um, it, it is kind of disturbing when we think about, as institutions, when we're promoting diversity, what does that look like for the climate? How do students react to that? And then finally, this last, uh, the last component was actually um, there was no significant effect, and. You know, this could be for a variety of reasons, but basically it says that adding more uh, URMs or more diverse students of color to a situation does not have an effect on individuals and their ideas about diversity. And as disappointing as this was, that could be for a variety of reasons, but it also goes to show that um, we should still be advocating for increased diversity but we have to understand that that's not where that ends. does not It's not the end-all, be-all for creating wonderful, affirming climates for everyone. And so these are my implications here that, um, just like I said, that everybody deserves to have a supportive educational experience in, in their graduate studies in all levels of education, but it's really important that we also think about climates and, uh, and how people from different groups interact with racial climates in, in different capacities. Um, and I also would like to point out that I think somebody mentioned it earlier today about the discourse on diversity, and I think with that, um, that surprising finding, to me, it could be about how we're approaching diversity, how we're talking about it. Are we talking about underrepresentation in a negative way? Are we talking about how hard it is and how difficult it is? And are people reacting to that somehow? And it's, it's showing up in their own individual perceptions. So that is all I have for my brief quantitative work. And then Marina will come up and talk about her projects.
4: Hello, my name is Marina. Um, I did a qualitative analysis of the survey data based on the survey respondents' answer to the question, what else do you think we should know about diversity at UCI? And I focused specifically on faculty. So these are the questions that I asked. And then I wanted to come up with themes across the different findings that I had. So what I did is I used a qualitative analysis tool by the name of deduce. And I went through and I created codes and I looked for themes across all of the different respondents answers. And they were everywhere from a character count of five to something along the lines of 750. So some people had a lot to say, and some people literally would just say, fine, period. So it was interesting to see the wide range of opinions. There were three overarching themes that I found. And they were really about diverting attention from the survey topic, diverting attention from personal responsibility, and unfortunately, diverting attention from institutional change, actually making that change. The ways that I saw these is I I made comparisons uh, based on URM status, faculty status, and gender. So the first is URM and non-URMs. And what I found, I'm not sure if you can see the variable names, but some of the most significant and what I found with this is that non-URMs were more likely to point out that there's systemic responsibility and not personal responsibility. So there was no mention of, I think this is something that I can do or that my department can do. It was more about, this is what the university is doing and it's failing us. Um, Also variables that I found that were significant based on chi-squared tests were ideas such as, there's discrimination against women in the hiring practice, the university doesn't hold faculty accountable for diversity efforts, and non-URMs were more likely to say that. Next. I found that senior faculty were more likely to focus on the survey design and not actually recommendations for change. And I thought it was interesting um, (laughs) that the greater the faculty status, the more likely they were to be offended by the survey. (laughs) So um, They were also upset, which I found interesting, and that they felt that they needed to reiterate it, was that they were upset that there was not an option to be neutral in the survey. Um, That was deliberate, and respondents were upset about that because they said, well, I don't really have an opinion about this, and I think it's really something that they were trying to hide behind. Um, Next, I focused on gender. And what I found was, in my personal opinion, that men knew more in terms of, I need to say that diversity is important, but I don't actually believe it. So (laughs) it's this idea about, Um, Men were more likely to say that diversity is important, but they were also significantly more likely to say that merit is more important than diversity. So they would say things along the lines of, don't be too heavy-handed with diversity. Uh, In other words, stay out of my department, but go ahead and fix somewhere else. Um, The idea that men thought that merit was more important than diversity also signaled to me that they contrasted merit and diversity, that they couldn't be the same, that it was an either-or choice. It was either we're going to have diversity or we're going to have a quality institution. Um, women, on the other hand, were more likely to give specific examples of how there could be specific changes to support institutional change. So some of the findings that I had from the, some of the most interesting were that non-URMs were more likely to describe barriers in diversification efforts, but URMs were more likely to give specific action steps in how can we diversify this campus. Also, men were more likely to argue that diversity is important, but that it should not come at the expense of the university's quality. Also, in terms of senior faculty being um, offended by the survey and focusing on the survey design, junior faculty were actually more likely to say, this is what we need to do. I know in my own department that this is a change that can be made to support institutional diversity. So hopefully we don't find that the longer you're here, the (laughs) less encouraged you are. And that is my finding.
5: Thank you Kelly and Marina, that was really wonderful. They've done a fantastic job in analyzing this data further. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're doing here at UCI in terms of programming. Um, These are photos of some of the programming that we've um, been doing. Our goal here is to create an inclusive campus culture uh, for all students an inclusive climate and to recruit more underrepresented students um, into our doctoral programs. Um, so the bottom corner over here is our most recent event, which we just held was a fall welcome event, at um, which 70 students uh, came. It was standing only, so it was very exciting. Um, what are we doing? One thing that we've been doing is we've organized a speaker series. So we had, um, and we have one of our speakers here in the room, Carlos Grijalva, uh, but we have had a speaker series over the past year trying to touch on various aspects of the the um, diversity issue in higher education. Um, our dean of our law school, Erwin Chamerinsky, gave a talk about Proposition 209, the legal climate surrounding diversity efforts. And one of the points that he made, which I think was stated earlier today by someone else, was that we sometimes unnecessarily limit ourselves um, thinking that the legal climate prohibits more than it actually does. So he, he um, present, presented some of the myths about 209. Carlos Grijalva, who's here in the room, um, he talked about best admissions practices and recruitment practices. And in- particular about problems associated with the GRE scores, which are not predictive necessarily of success in graduate education. Um, We presented some of the um, climate survey results that we've already talked about, and we brought out Marta Tienda, a demographer um, from Princeton, who discussed uh, what the state of Texas has done regarding diversity issues and how and the legal climate um, the fisher v texas case which is pending there Um, and one of the long-term goals that we have is to try to pull together these presentations and other work um, hopefully for a edited volume on this topic um, so we evaluate everything that we do. So here you can see some of the results of the evaluations. On a four-point scale, you'll see that um, the talks that we've held, the workshops that we've held were very well received, including the final point here that um, you know people feel they receive practical information as well. Um, we've tried to... Uh, in addition to holding talks, we've tried to make the information presented available more broadly for people who couldn't necessarily attend the talk. Um, so, for example, we extracted some uh, best practices in recruitment. Some of these are things we've already talked about here today. Um, already mentioned the issue of GRE scores. Um, someone else earlier today mentioned not being overly negative about an applicant simply based on the undergraduate institution that they attended and so forth. So we've, we've distributed these kind of tips and we've made the talks and the results available to people in other formats as well. Another thing that we did, um, Francis presented the structure of our program, we've really tried to be innovative. And so one way that we've gone about that is that we've distributed a call for people to our decade mentors um, to submit applications for innovative programs that they could implement in their own departments. And so this was a competitive process. As you can see, we received 12 proposals. We funded six. And we received proposals from departments across campus, you know, music, for example, Um, arts, you know. So it was a very exciting process reading all of these. Um, I just I want to give you two examples of the projects that we funded. One is in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, and that's a project that's working on the issue of gender, um, gender diversity and particularly trying to give female doctoral students in that department the opportunity to develop fabrication skills that they may or may not have developed earlier in life. So they came over the summer. They, they participated in a course specifically devoted to learning fabrication skills, The Department of Chemistry is also um, implementing a new project. It's following a model called the Posse Model that some of you may be familiar with, um, which attempts to bring in a cohort of students to combat the isolation that underrepresented students um, sometimes feel or experience. um, evaluating applications holistically, getting to know the students, uh, working with particular students from feeder institutions. In this case, it's going to be some of our Cal State institutions. So those are just two examples of the funded projects. Um, Another thing that we've done is we've, and this was already mentioned, we've developed a decade student council. We have both a central student council, Um, that coordinates um, with students from different departments and programs across the campus and also works closely with the graduate division. In addition, the schools are all being encouraged to develop their own um, student councils to work with decade mentors in their schools, so that's going on. That's where I was so excited to see 70 students come out to our first welcome event of the year. Um, The students put together their own newsletter, which they publish, and distribute around the campus. They had a logo contest. We realized that we were creating PowerPoints and we didn't have a logo for a decade. So the logo that you see here actually was designed by our students. Um, And so it was very exciting to see what they came up with, the notion of increasing steps, right, improvements over time. And then we've also made some travel funding available to students who are participating in the, student, in the Decade Student Councils to support their professionalization experience and compensate them to some degree for the kind of effort that they're putting out. And I believe Francis is going to share with you some of the results. I think in, in contrast to you know, some of the discouraging um, results that we saw earlier where things are entrenched over time, you'll see some changes.
2: So um, we are doing evaluations every year, and um, we can't say that it's go- an, an overnight transformation. Um, I told Carlos at lunch one of my favorite stories of, um, uh, that we widely distributed his PowerPoint um, about the validity of the GRE, and the good news was that um, admissions committees um, read the material. The bad news was they didn't believe it. So one of our admissions committee's chair who was also an associate dean actually said in an associate dean's meeting oh you just brought this guy in off the street and we're supposed to believe him but our statisticians our, our faculty are more statistically savvy and they don't agree. I said he's not a guy off the street. He's on the GRE board but I mean, it's just you know, faculty want to believe what faculty want to believe. So we didn't expect overnight change and of course we're not going to get it this was from um, our evaluator um, did this in spring of this year so about a year and a half into the project and he asked both faculty and students, and these are faculty and students who are involved in the decade program not a a campus wide survey about faculty attitudes and beliefs about diversity three is no change and um, the, the Blue are the responses of the student council, and red are the faculty mentors. The faculty mentors didn't actually think there was that much change in faculty attitudes, although a little. And um, students thought there was more change in faculty attitudes. When you looked at the opposite, you asked about student attitudes, you saw the opposite. So faculty thought that students had improved their attitudes, but students didn't. So you know, um, change is slow. What can we say? However, when we look at the numbers, we actually do see change, and this is um, most surprising. This was for, for um, fall enrollments to two thousand and eleven. So this was at the end of our planning year, and we looked at um, two thousand through seven through ten base, and then compared um, two thousand eleven, and we looked at STEM, non-STEM, and total. And the depressing news was that although the uh, percentage of female enrollees, these are new new admits, um, in non-STEM schools went up, um, that in STEM schools went down. Um, So overall there was no change. But the very good news was that in both uh, non-STEM and particularly in STEM schools, um, and overall, um, there was an increase in the um, admission and the enrollment of um, underrepresented students, and that was statistically significant. And this was only after a year of planning. We'd done the climate survey. We hadn't started any programming whatsoever. Our data suggests that this was less a change in the admissions, because these faculty still love their GREs, um, but it was actually a change in yield. So I think that um, there was more of an effort made to recruit students who had already been admitted. And although I can't show you the Fall 12 data because we haven't reached our third week census yet, that will uh, occur this Friday, our preliminary data based on SIRs show an even more promising trend. We're up again this, this year. And so um, things are changing, even if it is um, with some grumbles. So. Um, my colleagues will come up and we'll answer questions.
1: Thank you. Thank you to all four of you for uh, sticking within very strict time uh, requirements. I want to make a couple of comments as people think about asking questions and you know, what's really important here is that for those of you who read the Ong et al. article on, on the Inside the Double Bind, there was a strong emphasis on climate, and especially at the graduate level. And so this is a, a prime example of, you know, how to address this issue of isolation and tokenism and making people feel welcome. And... And I think what's really incredibly exciting are the strategies that are being implemented. So I I commend them on that. So I think it's a good time for questions. I'm going to step aside and uh, let Francis come and answer questions. So,
3: go
6: ahead. I'm uh, Tyrus Miller. I'm Dean of Graduate Studies at uh, UC Santa Cruz. We also uh, did our climate survey and we added a new set of questions that involve things like student voice in programs, um, their sense of the the offerings for professional development, uh, academic professional development in particular, but also uh, non-academic professional development. Um, And one of the, it really, uh, we had a number of interest, and also TA training. Um, We had a number of interesting results, but one that I was thinking of when, when I was listening to the presentations um, was a f- somewhat complicated one um, on the one hand we, we saw that uh, there was a significant difference in the perception of programs' uh, provision of the required professional development activities so things like preparation for uh, how to write a dissertation um, how to uh, how to prepare research papers and so forth um, on the other hand there was a there was a, one of the sorts of results that came out was that those departments that were perceived as doing a good job of that were also perceived as having created um, an inclusive environment for students of of different sorts. Um, And it does suggest that, I mean, in one way it's a sort of a a no duh result. Um, Better mentorship also creates a more inclusive environment. But this was specific to those things that are most anxiety producing and uh, also that we got significantly uh, sig- significant data about differences in the perception within the same department of <coughs> underrepresented students and, and non-underrepresented students.
2: Uh, I think what you're saying is, is very consistent with our data, I think the Big message from our data, particularly Marina and Kelly's data, is that change has to occur at the departmental level. Um, and, and you saw that um, in some of the data that there's actually a negative correlation between what's happening at the institutional level and, and uh, percept- individual perceptions of diversity. So we feel that um, the model that we're implementing just now, which really is targeted at individual programs is a way to move forward based on the data that we received, and is very consistent with what you you found.
7: Do
5: you have anything you want to add? No, no I think um, these sorts of things will benefit all of the students. I don't know if this is on. Um, so I, I think that makes sense.
7: I had a couple of thoughts about Kelly's project. Um, I just want to make sure I'm understanding, though. you You're not comparing... Effort, institutional transformation efforts at the larger level of the university with, indiv- with departmental responses, are you? Is, I thought it was individual responses.
3: Right. So the what I did was um, situated the individuals within their school. So it's not the entire UCI. So when, when, when you're thinking about the individual and their gain or loss of Attitude related to diversity, they're only being compared to the peers in their school. So it's really about the climate in that
7: school. In that school, okay. Mm -hmm. So you had these two kind of unexpected findings. Mm -hmm. uh, One of which, I'll take the third one first, and that's the one I remember better, was that the um, attitudes about diversity didn't, in fact, Become more positive as more students of color and presumably women students right. were present. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Right. So, this you may remember there was a series of sort of hate crime incidents at UC San Diego and actually throughout the UC system in 2010. And I worked with a graduate student on putting together a, a kind of a web based. Um, Analysis of some of that, and um, I, the Black Student Union at UC San Diego actually had a, a very I think trenchant critique of the lack of diversity mm-hmm. at, at uh, UC San Diego, especially among faculty, and they specifically, in their their sort of presentation to the chancellors, um, made a point to package together. Um, ideas about increasing diversity, and again, it's mostly uh, related to faculty in this case. And they said, "Okay, we want we want commitment to FTE to to bring in a more diverse faculty, but at the same time, we also want increased funding, and in some cases, the, the you know the, the halting of the elimination of you know." Funding to the to the cross cultural center, to the LGBTRC, to uh, you know different diversity student organizations on on campus, and we want some of those FTE to be guaranteed to go to the ethnic studies programs because this is where the faculty are actually doing the work related to inequality, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so their point was, you can't just Throw bodies into the institution without creating a, a, a structural, you know, an institutional setting in which knowledge production about these issues matters. And the administration has to signal that these things matter um, by supporting these programs. So that was. So this is a long way of saying that I think just just increasing. Numbers just focusing on numbers is not going to necessarily solve the problem. And there's even some good social science research which I haven't read for a long time that you increase the, this is around ethnic and racial diversity, you increase that and you in fact actually generate more conflict if you don't also then create a context in which people can understand histories of discrimination, current practices of discrimination, and things of that nature. So to me, that's what that finding potentially is speaking to. I'm sorry, I'm being really fast or really long-winded. So I'll save it and talk to you personally about the other one.
3: Yeah, I I I definitely agree that one of the critiques of uh, affirmative action from more of a you know radical perspective is that it's only focused on increasing the amount of the proportion of certain groups and. You can do that till the cows come home, and it's really important to do that because then we don't even have any representation. We don't have a voice. There has to be that that tipping point. But if that is not combined with meaningful um, analysis, meaningful change, meaningful conversations, then the climate does not necessarily change, and you do not have the equitable outcomes that you were hoping to address. So
2: so quick point about the GRE and Dr. Grival has behind me so I don't know what he's going to say but but I'm I'm actually surprised that you're so down on the GRE because the GRE actually allows us to broaden the sort of schools from which we admit I mean we are happy to take students uh, into my department which is a rather highly ranked department and therefore has a lot of very very competitive applicants but we are happy to sort of widen the pool of our incoming students big Be- because despite, for example, having studied in a lesser known school, in a lesser known department even, they may have a really good GRE score, which coupled with some, uh, uh, some undergraduate research we normally consider to be a very good indicator of success in research. So I could, should probably let Carlos answer that. But uh, the, the bottom line is if somebody's got a great GRE score, that's great, and faculty will admit them. But um, there's a whole body of research that suggests that underrepresented minorities do not score as well, particularly on the verbal GREs. So you, if you're using GREs, you're, you're discriminating. Uh, um, and then there's all sorts of statistical issues. So uh-huh.
8: So I'm Carlos Grijal from UCLA, the guy off the street. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm not going to get into the GRE. Uh, there's value in all of the yeah. components, I think, what the GRE board really says is don't use one measure. Be holistic about it. Uh, You want to look for consistency. If it's uh, high scores in math and and their courses and poor quantitative uh, scores, there's a mismatch. Something's going on there. You have to look at the whole picture and find out what the source of the um, issue is.
2: Um, your point was that you yeah. you didn't want to just create a Q score, right? Um, to have and, a cut and line. And then use for that example. as a way yeah, of yeah. cutting off, which is done by a lot right. of people.
8: But that's not my purpose for coming up here. I, what I wanted to comment on was that, you know, and I'm sure that uh, many deans have similar experiences. You go to faculty meetings, you talk to faculty; they don't want to be preached about diversity. I think uh, most those that are that know about it, um, they get it. Uh, Some of them um, don't want to be preached about diversity and so they feel forced into doing things that they may not feel all that comfortable about. I think what we have to do is do a better job of promoting the science of diversity and showing why why it's important, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because of the kind of work that Scott Page and others have done that have actually demonstrated the fact that a diverse group actually is more productive more creative. I think if we do that, it's going to help. The other thing is the notion of stereotypes. The presence of individuals is important. I think there's a lot of literature to show that um, and uh, we see that in faculty meetings. If you have that one Hispanic or that one black, it's going to change the the whole profile of that meeting just because they know that they have to have some recognition of the fact that different views have to be reflected. So So our program tries
2: not to to preach. It tries to get faculty peers to talk to their colleagues and students to talk to their faculty as well, which is turning out to be a slightly harder problem, but we'll get there.
9: Thank you for that presentation. It was really neat to see. Uh, My name is Asmer. I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Merced. I'm in the physical sciences. Um, Not a very... Big crowd, I should say. (laughs) But anyway, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting in the list that um, uh, you presented from your findings was how women felt that it was really important for people to be held responsible for uh, at least not promoting diversity, um, not so much as preventing things that could have worked out from working out um, in fairly negative ways. I really like that metaphor of landmines that was used before because it's really very descriptive of at least the experience when I was a graduate student at UC, um, and experienced not just mine, but several people and my peers that went through. Um, except for the fact that it's not a traditional minefield we're talking about where there are multiple mines and the chances of stepping one are high. There's probably a couple of mines out there, but they don't deactivate. They keep, you know, they keep, multiple people keep, passing through those mines and keep keep stumbling, uh, many stumbling and just dropping out of these pipelines because it's it's too hard to deal with them, to be frank, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But we don't really, and it's not that we don't recognize that this thing exists, but we don't seem to have too many, at least that I am aware aware of, um, institutional structures to address these issues. Um, When the problems are pointed there, I feel like as a grad student and postdoc, and even faculty, I get exposed to a lot of things, positive things, to improve diversity, um, and you know a lot of things. And for the majority of people, are actually working really hard to do it. But where we stumble is, you know, one two people here and there that completely erase the progress that could have been made. Right. Um, and unfortunately, that one two people make a difference in a lot of people's career trajectories. Uh, but we don't, I don't quite hear a lot about how to address these kinds of problems, um, and I really don't understand why. I'm not a social scientist, so I'm...
4: <laughs> One of the recommendations that I saw in the results that I read, um, I'm sorry, the responses that I read, was that faculty don't feel supported in terms of the action steps that they're taking to support diversity. So somebody mentioned those who value diversity will continue to value diversity and support it, but those who don't won't be involved. And so a lot of it is about faculty who become involved because they think that diversity is important, but then they have their attention detracted and it's not necessarily focused as it should be on things like publishing, and that doesn't bode well on their CV or their um, when they're coming up for tenure. So faculty... One of the things that I saw them mention is that diversity efforts, they don't count as much, if at all, in the tenure track process. And I think the same thing goes for students. I know that a lot of the events that I'm involved in around campus, I personally get involved and devote my own time because I think it's important. But they're not going to go on my CV and they're not going to help me get anything published. That's
9: a really good point. But I... Maybe I didn't make my point clear but that's really not what I was asking what I was asking more was about structural things that in the system that could be done to prevent you know the same minefield from stumbling multiple people over and over again <laughs>
1: Well, I know one thing that's coming up, it's, it's only part of the issue is the issue of mentoring, and I know that's going to be the topic of the next roundtable, so hopefully we can take all of this and sort of generate these ideas into the, the next one. I know there's a l- lot more questions, and time. we would like to have more time for discussion, but um, we're going to move on to our final uh, session, so let's thank the four presenters.
10: Uh, Colleagues, we're at that time in uh, the conference where I announced that we're going to extend this meeting another seven hours. (laughs) But seriously, again, I want to thank you uh, for your commitment, for your willingness to make time to visit us during the day. Um, I think what this conference shows, at least to me, above all, is that UC can be a learning organization an organization that not only generates knowledge for wide dissemination and use but also can learn about itself in order to improve outcomes that we consider very important uh... i also hope you will agree with me that during the day that our panels which were well chosen and well developed by the planning committee i think in one way or another way addressed our three overarching goals, and I just want to remind you of those goals. The first is to provide a context for institutional transformation. I think we've seen that in a national, statewide, and even local context. The second goal is to equip faculty, administrators, and graduate student leaders to be agents on behalf of institutional transformation and I think that was on display I think uh, quite emphatically particularly in the afternoon sessions uh, from the presentation from the School of Biological Sciences as well as the representatives including the Dean of Graduate uh, Division of the Decade Program. And the final and third goal is to improve the recruitment and climate for women of color in STEM and SBS. This question that Uh, Dean um, um, uh, Leslie pointed out, fundamentally is a question that rests with the faculty, precisely because the faculty make the final decision. The faculty make the decision about how they're going to create a climate in their seminars. faculty make a decision about what type of tacit knowledge they're going to communicate. Faculty make a decision about how to support someone to be successful. But above all, I hope, I think we're going to be inspired to continue the important work that we've been doing and that we still need to continue doing.
11: I wanted to remind you as you uh, sort of debrief on your campuses about today, to, to look again at that packet of bios of our presenters. We really had an amazing group of people here today, chancellors to graduate students and um, Uh, the energy and the knowledge and the expertise have really been important. So what I did is I was listening to conversations during the day. I wrote down phrases and words that I thought were particularly important because they got said many times and in many different ways. We have uh, Kelly Ward, one of the graduate students you just heard from, has agreed to... Uh, put together a, a, uh, an analysis of our discussion today um, as someone with expertise in these issues. So we, that's something we will issue in a few weeks when it's done, and, and it'll give you something that you can also take back to your campuses. And I hope some of these words show up in Kelly's analysis. Um, unconscious bias, we heard again and again as an effective way to talk about these issues. Intersectionality. Uh, the importance of understanding the 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 particular domains of disciplines and sub-disciplines and the differences there for women and underrepresented minorities. Um, We talked in one session about social and behavioral sciences as the Cinderella sciences. Uh, We talked a lot about APM 210 um, and its validation of diversity work, whether or not that's effective, but also about the importance of thinking of adding something that would emphasize translational research by faculty and we talked about evaluation of teaching as well. Uh, one session talked about STEM++ uh, which is another way of saying we've got STEM, we've got SBS, we've got health sciences, we've got a lot of ways that we um, need to think about defining this conversation. Uh, we talked about meritocracy, merits, excellence, uh, excellence versus diversity, we all know that's a problematic area that we need to continue to talk about. Uh, uh, Anna talked about historically white colleges and universities as a, a term we should be thinking about as well. Uh, family issues, family responsibility came up, solo faculty, um, and, and the notion that the disaggregation of data is key to what we do as we move along. So. Uh, what we will do is produce for you the summary of the day, and it will include some ways we hope you will take this information and these issues back to your campuses. These roundtables are designed to build on one another. Um, we're thrilled to have so many people here today. We, we hope many of you and or your colleagues can join us again in April and again next academic year as well. Uh, we'll let you know when the materials are posted on our website so that you can go there and you've, you've got them to um, share. Those of you who heard, heard Marianne Mason also know that she will sh- soon have documents for you to share as well. So many thanks to Doug, to Dina, and to all of you here at UCI who made this day possible. And a special thanks to those of you who traveled from afar to be with us. So thanks. See you in Riverside.